morning in prayer, and then we'll go to the quiz. Father, we thank you for, again, for your goodness to us, your grace to us. Father, we think of our uh, class member here, uh, uh, Pearlie, in the emergency with his congregation he had to go deal with. We pray for him. We pray that you will uh, give him the words of comfort and wisdom that he needs as he deals with his family. Father, we pray for all of us here in the, in the class that we can concentrate today and we'll be encouraged by the things we study in your word. And as we take the quiz, that each, uh, each student will be able to recall that which he has studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, any questions? Anybody have any questions over the quiz? What? There will be. Is the word holy and sanctification used interchangeably? They're both based on the same word. They're not used interchangeably, but they're both based on the same word. Holy, holy means uh, to be sanct. Well, it depends on how it's, how it's used, but they're very. They're both based on the same root. We'll get into that as we go through uh, the lesson today. Okay. Y'all are all a blur. Yes, ma'am. And not about the exam, but about the last exam we did. What did uh, you do? Did you throw them in the read seat? We haven't no, received those back yet. I, I, I said that just before I left. I will get all your quizzes back to you next week. I was gone all Sorry, I couldn't Yeah, I was gone all last week, and so I didn't get those done. I mean, virtually from the last time we were together until this time, I've been just consumed with this conference last week. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the uh, WHW Ministries conference, how many of y'all have ever heard of it before, other than Chris over here? Yeah, it's a it's a great conference. Uh, you might want to tell your pastor about it for next year. Every year it's like uh, the first of October. Next year it's the eighth through the twelfth, I think. And uh, it was uh, originated here in Houston some 17 years ago. 16 years ago, actually, in 1990, as a result of a conference that was held at Second Baptist called the Conference on Biblical Exposition, C-O-B-E, the Cope Conference. And uh, R.A. Williams and uh, uh, Larry Harris and George Waddles, the three men who started this, their last names formed the abbreviation W-H-W for Williams, Harris, and Waddles, uh, went to that and said, you know, we need to have a conference like this to teach these principles to our pastors, all three black pastors. And so they started that. Uh, R.A. was original. I think he was from the Fifth Ward here in Houston. Waddles was from Chicago, and Harris was from up in uh, Ohio. And, in, uh, and so they structured this conference around Bible study methods, teaching context and culture, word studies, and Greek syntax. Harris taught the syntax. Harris went to be with the Lord in the summer of 98, and there were three men on their advisory board who had taken a class on uh, Greek for people who don't know Greek at College of Biblical Studies back in 1986, and I taught the class. And they said, well, you know, the only guy who can replace Harris is Dr. Dean. So they tracked me down, and uh, I was pastoring in Connecticut and went to uh, the first conference there were about 600, probably about 300, 400 uh, pastors, and the rest were laymen at the, uh, in Memphis in 98. Um, in 
And uh, that was just, you know, just great. It's been a great fit, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and watched a number of men uh, really grow and mature in their understanding of Scripture and Bible study and how that's affected their ministry over the years. And it has revolutionized the ministries of a lot of pastors and uh, a lot of laymen. So it's always, uh, since 1999, it's been held, it's been held in Los Angeles. So every every year, so you might want to tell your pastor about that. They have a website. I don't know. I don't know the exact website name, but it's just Google WHW Ministries, and you'll find it. Okay, Leviticus. Leviticus is. If you want a key word for Leviticus, it's uh, offerings and sacrifices. Offerings and sacrifices, or priests and offerings. So that's that's the main idea. It talks about its name for Leviticus, uh, Leviticus uh, name for the Levitical priest, because there's an emphasis on the role of priesthood, and we'll get into that as we go through it. But here's our here's our little cartoon to uh, give you a a memory. You have a priest in the middle who is uh, juggling his offerings and sacrifices. There, that's. Um, uh, Genesis, what's the key word for Genesis? Again, what's the key word for Exodus? Exit. Exit. Key word for Leviticus is priest and offering. Okay. First of all, Leviticus, what do you have on your notes? Priests and sacrifices. Priests and sacrifices. The... Uh, issue in the priesthood, and I think I is dealing with uh, tabernacle. We'll just start here. Uh, Leviticus establishes the theological foundation for the atoning work of Christ in the New Testament. As I pointed out before, when we go to the Old Testament, we find the basis for what happens in the New Testament. And if you want to understand the whole concept of atonement, and incidentally the word atonement is never used in the New Testament, but if you want to understand the concept of atonement and what's going on on the cross, then the basis for that is found in the, in the pictures that we have in the Mosaic Law and specifically in the book of Leviticus. So it establishes the theological foundation for the atoning work of Christ. Secondly, Leviticus describes the entire operation of the Jewish system of sacrifices and rituals. So that gives us the orientation to the sacrificial calendar, the different sacrifices, what they're for, and the various rituals involved in uh, tabernacle and later temple worship. Third thing is that Leviticus is written by Moses, but it has more verses presented as direct revelation than any other book of the Old Testament. Uh, what I mean by that is what I say afterward in your notes is that the book consists of numerous divine speeches communicated through Moses to the people. In other words, the key idea is thus saith the Lord, and then there will be maybe a whole chapter of divine instruction quoting specifically what the Lord has said. 
And uh, this is emphasized by the very first word of the book, Vayikra, which in the Hebrew means, and he called. So from the very beginning we have the, this is presented as a direct message from God. Now the key word, fourth point, the key word for Leviticus is holiness. Holiness, that's the fill in the blank there. The key word for Leviticus is, is, is holiness. The key phrase is priests and offerings, but the key concept, the key uh, doctrine in Leviticus that's developed is really this word holiness. And the book instructs this chosen nation on how to maintain fellowship with God as a redeemed nation. Remember, in, in Exodus, I pointed out that Exodus has two divisions. The first part of Exodus has to do with the redemption of the nation from slavery to Egypt, which is a picture of the redemption of the believer from slavery to sin. So Exodus 1 through 19 pictures the redemption of the nation, and then Exodus 20 and following pictures how a redeemed people are to live. That's the purpose for the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law wasn't designed to teach them how to be saved or to become the people of God. They were already the people of God. They were already redeemed. It is the law's purpose was to show how a how the people of God uh, were to live. Holiness means to be set apart to the service of God. The As Chris was asking earlier, it's important to understand the Old Testament concept and, and, and the words that are used for holiness. Because when you read about holiness in the New Testament, where do you think they get their concept of holiness? From the Old Testament, exactly. Now, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, but they have vowels when you write out the word. And the basic word group is Q-D-S-H. And the verb form is Kadash. And you can you, you take that those basic three consonants, and depending on uh, the vowels that you use and a prefix and endings, you can turn it into a, uh, a participle or a noun, uh, different or an adjective. But this basic word group means to be set apart. Now, the average person thinks that holy means to be morally pure. Right? That's not what it means. Because the, there, there's a feminine noun based on kadash and a masculine noun based on kadash that were uh, used to d- describe the temple prostitutes in the fertility worship of the, the uh, Baals and the Asherim. And so that obviously shows that they weren't morally pure. What were they? They were set apart or dedicated to the service of their God. You also have the word group Kadash, holy, sanctified, consecrated. All these, come, all these English words come from the same, uh, are based on the same Greek and Hebrew words apply to the vessels, the furniture, the bowls, the utensils that are used in the temple. Is a bowl morally pure? No. 
He'd be immoral, can't be moral. So this idea of moral purity is a secondary idea that comes into, into the meaning for us because if we are set apart to the service of a righteous God, then what does that mean? Then there must be a, a parallel righteousness. So that's where uh, the idea of moral purity comes in. It's really a secondary idea. The primary idea in sanctification is that which is set apart unto the service of God. So that will help us to understand some of these things as we go through it. The fifth point in your note, in your introduction there, is that a crucial issue for church-age believers when we come to studying Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, these are all books related to the Law of Moses, uh, is just exactly what is the relationship of the Law, the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, to the church age. This was a problem that the disciples wrestled with, if you remember, in the book of Acts. After Cornelius is a Gentile is saved, and after Paul goes out on his first missionary journey, and there are numerous Gentiles that are added to the church who become believers, the question becomes, okay, what is their relationship to the law? This is also fundamental to understanding the distinction between Israel and the church. Alan Ross writes, I give you the quote in your notes, in his commentary on Leviticus called Holiness to the Lord. Remember, Al Ross also wrote what else that you've read? Alan Ross. What else have you read written by him? Your commentary on Genesis in the Bible Knowledge Commentary series was written by Al Ross. Okay, he's the, he was the head of the Old Testament department in the 70s and 80s at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. So it's important to pay attention to who's saying what. I mean, this is one of the things I emphasize with the pastors. We have so many computer programs today that have so many different commentaries and resources in them, but you have to know who's writing them. What's their theological view? Where do these guys come from? I mean, you've got to be able to tell the difference between uh, the liberals and the neo-orthodox and the, and the guys who are who are solid theologically, dispensationalist versus covenant theology. You have, to know, you have to have a scorecard so you know the players because everything you read is written by somebody who's got a theological perspective and you have to be able to understand where they're coming from. Well, Al writes, in the New Testament, Paul explains that the law was a tutor. The Greek word is paedagogos. What English word do we get from the Greek word paedagogos? What? Pedagogos. Pedagogue. Pedagogical. A teacher. Okay? Pedagogy is a word for the study of teaching. A pedagogue. It was a tutor. This was a, a servant or slave that was uh, that the father, the head of the family, would hire, and his job was to teach the children, to train them, to discipline them, to uh, bring them up. There was a very famous man in the uh, ancient world by the name of uh, Alexander the Great. Conquered the world by the time he was 20, what, 25, 26 years of age. You know who his pedagogue was? Aristotle. Okay? That was the role, was to teach, to train, to educate, to bring discipline, and basically functioned as a, as a substitute parent. 
So in the New Testament, Paul uses this, this cultural illustration of a pedagogue, saying that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. In the words of the NIV, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, who is elsewhere in the New Testament called the end of the law, Romans 10.4. This means that for centuries God was teaching people important theological aspects about his eternal plan. When the Son of God came into this world to fulfill this plan, a treasure of theological images and ideas was ready at hand. People knew exactly what God meant by sacrifice because the Spirit of God had taught it to and through Israel in the revelation of the sacrifices and offerings. People understood what was meant by atonement, purification, or consecration because the people of God had been living out these rituals for centuries. And I would add, people would know when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you think a Jew was thinking when he said that? Sacrifice and the Passover lamb. They immediately had that image. So, see, God God takes years, centuries, to prepare the human race so that when Jesus comes, they can identify who he is and what he's going to do. That's why Galatians 4.4, Paul said that, that uh, Jesus came in the fullness of time. All right? Now, the sixth point I have is just an introduction to the law of Moses. We have to understand this whole concept of the law. Many people misunderstand the law. When, was, when did creation occur approximately? When did Genesis 1-1 take place approximately, according to what we've studied? About 4,000 B.C. Uh, when does the Exodus occur? 1446. Now, how many years have gone by? 2,500 years have gone by. When is the law given to Moses? Well, the Exodus occurred in 1446, between 1446 and 1445, there at Mount Sinai. They're there for a year. That's when all of this is given, from Exodus 20 to Exodus 40, all of Leviticus. All of this is revealed while the Jews are camped out there at the base of uh, Mount Sinai, also called uh, Mount Horeb. So, if the law comes along and says, thou shalt not murder, and uh, then was it wrong to murder before 1446 B.C.? Sure. The law, the point I'm making is the law doesn't make these things wrong. They've been wrong. I mean, the moral principles have been since the creation of the world. It's just that the Mosaic Law comes along and applies them in a law code. Just like we, as the United States, have a law code, the Constitution, the laws have been established. We have a a legal system, and that legal system uh, establishes these things as, as the law of the land. That's what the Mosaic Law is doing. So, first of all, we understand that the recipients of the law were Jews only. The Mosaic Law was only for Jews. It wasn't for Assyrians. It wasn't for Egyptians. It wasn't for Moabites. It wasn't for Edomites. It wasn't for anybody else. It was only for the Jews. And that's very important according to Exodus 19.3, Leviticus 26.46, Romans 3.19.9.4. You can look those passages up. The, The law was only for the Jews. So we understand from this 
that the Mosaic Law was never given to the Gentile nations. Never given to uh, the Gentile nations. This is Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. Let me just read that to you. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? In other words, nobody else has a law code like this. Nobody else is responsible for this law code. The Mosaic Law was never given to the Gentile nations. The Mosaic Law was part of a covenant or a contract between God and the nation Israel. God is entering into a legal contract, that's what a covenant is, between himself and Israel. It doesn't apply to the Edomites or anybody else. In fact, when you get into the later periods of, of history in the Old Testament, God is going to discipline Israel and take them out of the land for a period of 70 years. This happens when the Babylonians come. Right? We call that the Babylonian captivity. Are you all familiar with that? Yes. Okay. Why did God take them out for 70 years? What's the biblical reason for that? Why did God take them out of the land for 70 years? No, not to preserve them. He's disciplining them because of their apostasy, because of their idolatry, but for one other reason. He specifically states in Jeremiah. It has to do with the That's right. It has to do with the fact that they ignored the Sabbath years. And so he takes them out for 70 years. Notice that word 70? The, the, the seven? In order to make up for 70 sabbatical years that they have they have uh, uh, not observed. So the Sabbath is the is the sign of what law? What co- contract? Remember the Sabbath? Yeah, the Sabbath is, a, is the sign of what, what contract? What covenant? The Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant, right. The Noahic Covenant, the sign of the Noahic Covenant, <coughs> the rainbow, the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant was circumcision, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the Sabbath. And so they have violated the Sabbath. And so God takes them out and disciplines them for 70 years for violation of those 70 sabbatical years. Now, does God do that to anybody else? No. No. Is anybody else observing those sabbatical years? No. No. No, And it was to give the land rest. Remember, what was the promise in the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah, it goes back to land, seed, and blessing. You know, you have as in the land they had a responsibility to take care of the land, uh, to responsibly use the land that God gave them, and because they didn't follow His rules for how to take care of the land, God's going to take them out of the land. See that land's very, very important concept here. Takes them out of the land, um, and we'll see in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy. Uh, 28 to 30, that's a specific punishment that they're going to go through several series of judgments and or discipline, and that's the most harsh form is, you know, if you're rebellious, I'm just going to take you completely out, out of the land. Now, if you go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of the minor prophets, they bring judgments of God against various other nations, Edom, Moab, Babylon, Assyria, Never once does God bring a charge against them for anything that is unique to the Mosaic Law. 
There are two basic reasons that God brings judgment against these other nations. Number one, because of their idolatry. But see, that goes back to before the Mosaic Law. That's not unique to the Mosaic Law. The second reason is because of their hostility to Israel. And that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who curse you, I will curse. So Gentile nations are never held accountable for what's in the Mosaic Law as the Mosaic Law. That's very important to understand because then when you get into the New Testament and Gentiles start getting saved, are Gentiles supposed to be accountable to the Mosaic Law? No, No, they never have been. So the Mosaic Law doesn't apply to anybody other than Jews living in the land during a particular period of time from approximately 1406 B.C. when they're in the land. Uh, Well, it begins to apply once it's given in 1446 all the way up to um, the time that they're taken until until the cross. Once Jesus dies on the cross, that's the that's the end of the law. Okay, Chris. Uh, Doctor Nemes, I, I was listening to say uh, the part of the, the, the promise that I will bless those that, that bless you and curse those that curse you. Is that is that particular promise still? in effect as it relates to Israel right now. What okay, let's let's think about this. What covenant is that part of? Abraham. Abraham is is that a temporary or permanent covenant? It's a permanent covenant. So is it still in effect? Yes. Yes it is. It's still in effect. Are the Jews still God's chosen people even though they are apostate? Yes. Yeah. Are you still a member of God's family even when you're sinful and rebellious. Yes. Yeah. So just because the Jews are out of fellowship, apostate, and they still haven't accepted the Messiah doesn't uh, destroy the promise of God. That's what Paul argues in Romans 9. To the Jews belong the promises and the covenants of Israel. Okay? So that still applies. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Where is, where is Assyria today? Assyria. Gone. Where's Babylon today? Gone. Where's uh, Nazi Germany today? Gone. I mean, the the nations that are antagonistic to Israel have gone through gone through discipline, and so right now we're you know this is a very important principle to understand when it relates to the foreign policy of our government, and we got a problem in this country. This is just a little side note because the State Department. And this nation has been historically anti-Semitic. And you can go back and look at the records of what went on uh, during World War II and prior to World War II that uh, how the the State Department refused, despite the fact that they had documentary evidence of what was going on in Nazi Germany, they refused to officially recognize what was going on and to just open the immigration doors to uh, Jewish refugees from Europe. And there, I can't remember the name of the ship right now, but there was a ship that was filled with Jewish refugees from Europe that tried to go to South America. They were refused entry. They tried to go to Mexico. They were refused entry. They tried to come to the United States, and they were refused entry, and they ended up going back to Europe and to France, and eventually, I think, a large percentage of them died in the Holocaust. But this is... uh, this is a problem that this nation has had historically. Now, it's very important that we're, we're pro-Israel, 
today, and some of you may be uh, interested in this, but starting tonight at my church, uh, I'm going to start a series called Israel uh, in History and Prophecy. And I'm going to just go consecutively on Tuesday and Thursday night for probably the next five or six weeks and go through this. And I'm answering two questions that have been asked of me a lot lately, and that is, it, number one, is what's going on in Israel today prophetically significant? Mm-hmm. And number two is, do the Jews do the Jews in the land today have a right to be there, to be in the land today? And so uh, there's a lot behind this. I mean, this isn't the, you can answer the question simply, but I want to go through it in, in detail and look at the whole backdrop and history here. So... And those will be up on the internet site as well. Um, so the Mosaic Law is part of a covenant or contract with Israel. Second paragraph, the best analogy for us is that the Mosaic Law is equivalent to a nation's constitution. Nation's constitution. Just as the United States is not required to obey another nation's laws or constitution, Neither were other people required to obey Israel's law. I mean, you're not responsible as long as you're here in the U.S. If you do something that violates France's laws, that doesn't mean anything. Consequently, if someone in France does something that's a violation of our law, that doesn't matter. Uh, the Mosaic Law was a was the served as the law of the land, the constitution for Israel. However, the moral and spiritual realities on which the law were based are universals that had been true since the creation. Thus, murder was always wrong. Lying was always wrong. Bearing false witness, idolatry, these things were always wrong. They're just codified in the law code for Israel as their constitution. However, Sabbath observance did not become a legal requirement for Israel until the Mosaic Law. This is something that is unique to the Mosaic Law. It wasn't wrong to, to uh, violate the Sabbath or to work on the Sabbath prior to this time because it hadn't been, that, that's not really a universal principle. That is the sign of, of the covenant. So we come to a conclusion then under 2D that Christians... Therefore, are not under the law, just as Gentiles in the Old Testament were not under the law. Now, I got into trouble when I was a pastor, my first pastor, and I said, I said, you know, the Ten Commandments aren't in effect for today. <gasps> oh, man, these people just got all upset. <laughs> you know, they thought I was just a heretic, but they're not. Because the Ten Commandments are to the Mosaic Law, what I, I would compare to the preamble of our Constitution. It simply summarizes the foundational principles on which all the rest of the laws are based. So, okay. <laughs> what, what, is, what then is the position of the believer on this battle of should the Ten Commandments be posted in courthouses and the da-da-da? I think we should be for it. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's a historical thing. Where, where did our legal system come from? On what is it based? It's based on, on scripture. I mean, that's a historical reality. What is it that made the difference between uh, Western civilization, Western European civilization, and 
all other civilizations. What made the difference? The Bible. The Bible. See, today we, in our postmodern world, we have people who come along and say, you know, Western Europeans are any different or any better or worse than anybody else. But that's really an attack on Christianity. Western Europe, prior to Christianity, was just as pagan and idolatrous and polytheistic as India or China or Africa or any other place. What made the difference? What brought them out of that primitive paganism? It was a Bible and an understanding of moral absolutes, and that impacted how we understood what law was all about. So that the Ten Commandments, we, we didn't take the Ten Commandments as, as our law code, but we saw that as a model, as an example of what, of what law should be. And that's what that is. This is a statement of historical fact. To take the Ten Commandments out of any place, it's, just, it, it's, a, it's historical revisionism in a way. Say, you know, we, we have, our set of laws have nothing to do with the Bible. And see, that's part of the secular attack today against Christianity. We, we live in a world that wants to remove the influence of Christianity from our culture to ignore God and to... See, Romans 1 says that man wants to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And this is what, what the unbelieving mind wants to do is to distance itself from the righteousness of God. They're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And this is just another manifestation of it. That's why they don't want creation taught in school. They don't want morals taught in school. Every moral system has to be based on something, doesn't it? It's either going to be based on the Bible or it's going to be based on something else. Now, what do you want taught? And, and so you don't teach. They don't teach manners. They don't teach. There's, there's no discipline to schools. I mean, there's just been a complete breakdown in education. Why? Because the agenda that comes out of the secular mindset is to try to remove this and to reconstruct society according to relativistic principles. And so there's a strong social agenda there to uh, recognize that uh, homosexual marriage is valid and to uh, legitimize uh, abortion and a number of other things like these. These social actions all come out of a theological mindset that is trying to remove God and absolutes and righteousness from reality. Excuse me, Dr. Bain. Yeah. In the New Testament, Jesus has asked the question, which are the greatest commandments? Right. Okay, one of them is in the New Testament. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. The second one I find in Deuteronomy. They're both in Deuteronomy. I don't know if that's all. Yeah, they're both in Deuteronomy. They're both stay in Deuteronomy. But are they universal? Yeah, they are. And let me, let me, uh, well, actually, there's a little difference. And that's a, and that's a good question. When, did Jesus, when Jesus is on the earth, is the Mosaic law still in effect? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus is, is living his life, he's fulfilling the law, but he's also at the same time setting a precedent for what's going to happen in the church age because he's living his human, in his humanity, he's living his spiritual life on the basis of what? The dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which nobody else had. He had it. And that's what we have. Now, the, when, so the greatest commandment is what? 
in the Old Testament, he's summarizing the law. Deuteronomy states both of these. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's still true today. I mean, not because it's part of the Mosaic Law, because that reflects the universal principle. It excludes idolatry. And man is to, in the Mosaic Law, man is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's Leviticus 19.18. It's also restated in Deuteronomy. It is um, part of the Mosaic Law. It's stated three or four times in the New Testament, but in context related to an understanding of the law, not where it's applied to the church age. What's, how is that law changed? In, how is that principle changed in the New Testament? They were, what's the standard? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who are you supposed to love? Your neighbor. Does that, what, does that have anything to do with its spiritual status? No. No. They can be believer or unbeliever. And what's the standard? No, the standard. What's the standard? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the standard? As yourself. As yourself. Jesus comes along in John 13, 34, and 35, and what does he do? He says, By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so who's the object of love there? Who? The believer. Yeah, believers love one another. Okay, so that's it's a different object for love, because that's talking about one another. How, and what's the standard? Jesus, as I have loved you. That really ratchets, ratchets it up a few notches, doesn't it? So we have a new law, new principle in the New Testament for, for love that goes beyond loving your neighbor as yourself. So that was called the royal law. James chapter 2 refers to that, but it's talking to a Jewish audience, and it's, it's using the, that Old Testament law as an application. Galatians refers to it also. What's the problem in Galatia? You've got Judaizers coming in. And so there's a reference to the Mosaic law there. So it's always within context where there's an issue related to the Mosaic law. Uh, it's not stated as uh, when you have love your neighbor as yourself, uh, that's not being reapplied to the church, but that is recognizing the principle that's there, and, and especially like in Galatians, saying you can't even do that. But if you walk by the Spirit, it will produce a fruit of the Spirit. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. love. See, you've got to tie that whole context together from Galatians 5, um, 514 all the way down through the through 526. Thank you. Okay. Um, the limitations of the law. First of all, the Mosaic Law had limited objectives. It was temporary. One of the reasons we know that it was temporary is because in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews comes along and says that there's a new covenant. And the fact that it's called a new covenant and the Mosaic Law is refers to as the Old Covenant, tells us that the Old Covenant was viewed as temporary from the very beginning. This was not a permanent covenant. So it has certain, certain limitations. First of all, the law could never justify. The law could never justify. We're not justified by the works of the law. The Old Testament believers didn't get saved by obeying the law. They didn't get saved by sacrifices. They didn't get, you know, it could not justify at all. Second, the law could never give eternal life. Galatians 3.21. The law could never give eternal life. Third, the law could never provide the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
uh, for it, the law could never produce miracles. Now, if you notice, all of these statements I'm making are all supported by passages from Galatians. Why? Because this was what the problem was in the New Testament. Paul came to southern Galatia, goes to Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, and he's teaching the gospel, believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, trust in the Lord, you'll be justified. And as soon as he leaves, these Judaizers came along and said, well, that was really nice for Paul to say that, but you really don't get the superabundant blessing, the higher Christian life, the victorious Christian life, unless you, what? Unless you come in under, uh, under the Abrahamic covenant by getting circumcised and obeying the law. Then you get the uh, higher blessing. And so uh, Paul argues in Galatians, you don't get nothing from obeying the law. You don't get justified. You don't get blessing. You don't get uh, miracles, eternal life, Holy Spirit. The law could never resolve the problem of the indwelling sin nature. This is Romans 8, 3, and 7. The law can't solve... In fact, all that the law really does is prove that you're a sinner. That's what it does. You can't keep it. That's what Paul finally comes to in Romans 7, where he talks about how rigorously he's obeying the law, and he can go through all the externals, but it comes down to that that issue of of, uh, uh, don't, uh, don't, don't lust... For someone don't covet some, your, your neighbor's possessions, oops. And as soon as it gets into mental attitude sins, we're in trouble. We always, I always run into people who say, you know, you can really be sinless. <laughs> but when you get right down to it and you start talking about mental attitude sins of arrogance and jealousy and bitterness and hatred and, and all of these different things, it's just really tough. Usually when people say you, you, you can be sinless, they have a very restricted definition of sin. And that's one of the things that comes out in Leviticus. is If you read Leviticus, it talks about all the different things that you can do that renders you ceremonially impure. What is God trying to teach? He's trying to teach the pervasiveness of sin. That it invades and pervades everything. It's not just the terrible two. It's not just the you know, the fearsome five or the nasty nine or whatever your list is, you know, you've got, a, you know, you've got only a few sins. No, there's just all kinds of things that you can do to get impacted by sin. So the principle is that the, that the law could never resolve the problem of the indwelling sin nature. Salvation in the Old Testament is not based on observing the law. It is based on faith alone in Christ alone, uh, just as in the New Testament, however, in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to a promised Messiah. And in the New Testament, we're looking back to a risen, crucified and risen Messiah. They anticipated the Savior. We look back to the Savior. Okay, now the next section I'll just go through very quickly. The church in relation to the law. It's time for a break. Most of this I've mentioned already. Uh, Christ is the end of the law for believers in the church age. Okay, we're not under the law. Second, since the church is specifically not under the law, the law is not the Christian way of life. Third, believers in the church age are under a higher law, the law of Christ. And fourth, the only 
one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in some form in the New Testament is the Sabbath law. See, the only, see, they, they all state, not as the Ten Commandments per se, not in that format, but every one of those principles is reiterated in the New Testament except for the uh, Sabbath requirement. So what was the purpose for the Mosaic Law? First of all, to provide a civil, criminal, and ceremonial law code for the nation. It covered everything. They're a theocracy, which means God is the king. God's the ultimate authority. So thus, they, they blend church and state. Whereas we're different. We're not a theocracy, so we don't blend church and state. So we just have a, we just have a civil and criminal law code. We don't have a ceremonial law code. It was to teach the people how a redeemed nation would live set apart to the service of God because they were called as a nation of priests. They were to be a priest nation for all the nations. Third, they were to dem- it was to demonstrate that no one could consistently keep the law. All 613 commandments. It's not 10 commandments. It's 613 commandments. 613. Okay, so the next time somebody says, should we keep the 10 commandments, say which 10? The 613 commandments. Uh, Fourth, it communicated God's grace in relation to human failure because it's clear that you can't keep the law, but God provides solutions for all their failures in the the sacrifices and uh, uh, grace provisions. And then fifth, it provided a law code that would promote freedom and prosperity for the nation. If they followed the law, they would be prosperous and, and they would be uh, healthy and they would be a, a model to all of the nations. And then last, it served as a tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, last point there, the giving of the law introduced a new dispensation. New dispensation, God is now administering his history slightly differently. It introduces a new dispensation. This applies to Israel. There wasn't a, there wasn't a change for Gentile nations. They're still under the Noahic covenant. But it introduces a new dispensation, the dispensation of the Mosaic Law, which begins at Sinai and ends at the cross. Okay? Let's take a break. Uh, And when we come back, we'll start with our uh, basic, all that's just preliminary information, and then we'll come back and go to the uh, other background information when we get back from our break. It's 11 o'clock. We'll start up at 15 after. Dr. Dennis?